0: God's people must faithfully represent him on earth so that the world may know who he is and how to have a relationship with him. Fellow students, we're going to open, Lord willing, right now in 1 Kings, so if you would open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3, Uh, Lord willing, we'll be here the next three months or so, 1 and 2 Kings, very biographical and quite historical, so it's a completely different orientation framework than what we've done in the doctrinal book like uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. So let me give you a little historical context of what's taking place. So when you begin to read 1 Kings, I'm going to encourage you to read forward. As good fellow students, you'll understand what's going on. The nation of Israel began with a man named Abraham, who was born about 2300 BC, 2305. I'm using Barry Setterfield's chronology here. And God called Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, which was in. uh, the Babylonian area, modern-day Iraq, when he was 75 years old. And his son Isaac was born 25 years later when Abraham was 100 and his wife Sarah was 90. Isaac married his wife Rebekah when he was 40. And 20 years later, they had twin sons Esau and Jacob. Now Jacob's family ultimately left Canaan into Egypt at the command of God about 2105 or 2015 B.C., He was 130 years old. After 430 years in the land of Egypt, God brought Israel out of Egyptian slavery, as you recall, through the Ten Plagues, the miracles of Exodus, and that took place in 1585 B.C. Now, during that period of time, 430 years, Israel went from 70 people, one family, and grew to a family, a nation of about 2 million people. Israel spent 40 years, as you remember, wandering in the wilderness. It was only supposed to take them one or two years, but disobedience tends to lengthen our stay in very, various places. So it took them 40 years to get into the land of Canaan. And they entered the land of Canaan under Joshua about 1545 B.C. Now Joshua died and Israel entered the period called the Judges. This was Israel's dark ages. This was kind of a medieval period of time, actually much worse than that, because they routinely disobeyed God. There were five cycles of disobedience during the period of Judges, which always led to God's judgment. Actually, out of that 450 years, 93 years they were in direct disobedience and under God's judgment, and God would allow them to be invaded, usually by a foreign power, And after 5, 10, 15 years, they would get tired of it. They would cry out to God, and he would send them a judge, a deliverer. Now, the prophet Samuel was Israel's final judge. And he also anointed King Saul as Israel's first king, about 1096. Now, you remember the life of Saul. He began extremely well, but spent most of his life in disobedience and he was killed in battle on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines about 1056 after 40 years on the throne. David, the second king of Israel, also reigned for 40 years, and his Solomon son Solomon was anointed king about 1016 B.C. So that brings us to the opening passages of 1st and 2nd Kings. Most of the life of King Saul, as a matter of fact, all of it is 1st and 2nd Samuel. Most of the life of David, 1st and 2nd Samuel. First Kings opens with David on his deathbed. That's where First Kings opens up at this point in time. Now, this book initially was just called Kings, and it was all one book. The division of two books, why we call it First and Second Kings, took place about 285 BC. There was a Septuagint translation, they translated the Hebrew into Greek. And believe it or not, the scroll, they didn't have books back in the day. They had a scroll on rolls, and it got too big to handle because there was a lot of work here. So they divided it into two scrolls, equal size. That's how come we have 1 Kings and we have 2 Kings. Sometimes things happen for very pedestrian reasons. I mean, it was just too much to work, too much work to handle. So they cut it in two. So these two books, 1 and 2 Kings, record Israel's history. From the last days of David's reign to the last days of the last king of Judah, King Zedekiah. Now, there are three major divisions of Israel's history in these books. The first period is called the United Kingdom. That's when all 12 tribes of Israel ruled over by one king. And there were only three kings over that united period. Saul, David, and Solomon. The second period is the divided kingdom. This is where they almost had a civil war and they decided to go their separate ways. Solomon died in 976 BC and the ten northern tribes rebelled against the family of David. family of David had been ruling over Israel. The ten northern tribes says, we're done with you. Solomon was a very wealthy king, but believe it or not, he paid for most of his building projects through... And they didn't like the taxes, and they said, make our tax burden easier. He said, go pound sand. They said, we're out of here, right? So the ten northern tribes rebelled against David's family, and the ten northern tribes were called Israel. The two southern tribes were called Judah. So you're going to run into this. When you come through here, you'll see Israel generally refers to the ten northern tribes. Judah generally refers to the two southern tribes. Now, the divided kingdom stage lasted 254 years. 722 Assyria invaded and carried away the 10 northern tribes into captivity, and they disappeared from history at that point in time. So the final period of the monarchy is only the surviving southern kingdom of Judah, two southern tribes. And that period lasted 136 years when King Nebuchadnezzar showed up from Babylon and carried away Judah into exile for their 70-year exile due to disobedience. So the three periods, United Kingdom, Divided Kingdom, Surviving Kingdom, three periods of time. The books were probably written between 561 and 538 from the land of Babylon in captivity. The author we don't know. It was probably an unknown Jewish prophet who lived in exile in Babylon with the Israelite captives. He used a wide variety of sources in compiling this book. When you read these books, you will see them use the phrase, the chronicles of the kings of Israel, the chronicles of the kings of Judah. What they're talking about is records, right? Historical records that the kings left, and this compiler, this prophet, used those as reference material. Now, ultimately, this book was written by the Holy Spirit as is all scripture. So everything recorded here uh, is revealed to us by what God wants us to know. Now, God wrote this down for us more, far more than just for historical purposes. God doesn't want us to learn history. God wants us to learn the lessons of history. In 1905, the American philosopher George Santayana said a very famous phrase, most of you know it, Those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. If you've not quoted that to your children, you probably will sooner or later. Like your parents quoted it to you. You made the same foolish mistake last weekend. Are you going to do it again this Friday as well? Whatever, right? So unfortunately, here's what history teaches us. That we don't learn anything from history. History teaches either we refuse to learn lessons of history, or we forget the lessons of history, and we make the same exact mistakes that previous generations did, unfortunately. Now, God has warned us about this. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope he writes a somewhat similar phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, 11. Now, all these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that like he does not fall. Here's the principle, and this is pretty obvious. We all know it, and we all forget it. God records history so that we can learn from the examples of others. God records history so that we can learn from the examples of others. And he does that because you do not have enough skin on your back to pick up all the scar tissue you will pick up by doing it the hard way. But we all have a lot of scar tissue because we fail routinely to learn from what? The example of others. The Bible records hundreds of characters for our benefit. And they're either in one of two categories. Everybody in Scripture is either an example, do what they did because God blessed what they did, or a warning, don't do what they did because God disciplined them. Amen? So everybody in Scripture, all the biographies, are either examples and warnings, and we are going to learn a lot about them in First and Second Kings. What 1 and 2 Kings does, it records and measures all the Israeli monarchs by the standard of the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic Law is the standard by which their life is evaluated, and every one of them has a brief biographical sketch, and the books, 1 and 2 Kings, not only records the decline of the kingdoms and the decline of the kings, but why that decline took place. That is extraordinarily instructive for us because these were real people with real lives that made real decisions. And some of the decisions were utterly brilliant and some of them were stuck on stupid. And you look and you go, how could they possibly do that? And then you look at our culture and you go, how could we possibly do this? Right? So, Every king is evaluated based on the standards of the law as written in the books of Moses. So both books record the actions of the kings. They also record the actions of God's prophets. God revealed himself to all these kings through the five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books written by Moses, which they had, and through prophets. Everybody here knew what God wanted them to do because he sent them prophets, and they had the the first five books of the Bible to tell them what God expected of them. So you say, okay, what was God's purpose for the nation of Israel in the first place? We've got this monarchy. We've got this land, Canaan. We've got this nation, Israel. What's the point of God having a nation and a monarchy? What did he want to accomplish? Glad you asked. Genesis 12, 2 says, this is a promise to Abraham when he called him out of the land of Ur to go into the land of Canaan when he was 75. He says, Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the nation of Israel was formed and called by God to represent him on earth. So the nation of Israel would demonstrate to the world the glory of a people who live under the government of God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, right? Now, at Mount Sinai, God reiterated this covenant to Israel, and he stated that in some cases, in new forms, Exodus 19.4, he expands on what he told Abraham. He said, he's at the Mount of Mount Sinai, and he's talking to them, and he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Here's God's proposition. Now, if, that's conditional, if... You will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment. Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here's the principle, and this is directly applicable to you and me today. God's people must faithfully represent him on earth so that the world may know who he is and how to have a relationship with him. God's people must faithfully represent him on earth so that the world may know who he is and how to have a relationship with him. See, Israel was called out by God as a special people, his own possession, a holy nation, so that the world could see in visible form the character and conduct of what God was really like. And unfortunately, Israel failed in that, class, in that task. Over time, they became more and more like the pagan nations around them, less and less like God. Guess what? You and I are called for the exact same thing. You and I bear the name Christian. What does that impl- imply? We should be behaving like the name we carry. Yes? We should be behaving so that the world can see what Jesus is like. It's absolutely... Sobering, it's exhilarating and it's terrifying to realize that there are many people in your life that they think Jesus is like you. That's what they think Jesus is like. Question is, how accurately are you representing him? I'm asking me that too. It's extremely sobering because if they have a wrong concept of God, where does that concept come from? We need to be behaving like Jesus behaved with the motives Jesus had so people will have an accurate representation of who God is so they want to get to know him so they can be saved and spend forever with him in heaven. So the human author who wrote these books wrote them from exile in Babylon when they were captives and he wanted to teach the exiles the lessons of history, Israel's history. Specifically, he wanted to tell them why they had been exiled into captivity. Just to give you a thumbnail, the northern kingdom, that's the ten northern tribes, they had 19 kings in nine dynasties over 254 years. Now, what that means is, if there's a new dynasty, the old one got killed. Assassinated, right? 19 kings, 9 dynasties, 254 years, every single one of them was evil, bar none. The southern kingdom had 19 kings plus one queen, all from David's line, over 390 years, so long that dynasty lasts. Eight were good, 12 were wicked. Now, when a king sinned, and they usually did, God often sent a prophet to them to confront them, to say, you are sinning against the law of God. You need to repent, and here's the changes I expect to see. Some of them did repent. There are some of the most um, marvelous examples of biblical repentance in all of Scripture. But by and large, sooner or later, the nation turned back from God, fell back into idolatry. So the three themes that are emphasized in these two books, which we'll be exploring, Number one, God ultimately judged Israel and Judah for disobeying his law. Now, if God did that to Israel, what are we in line for here? Ruth Bell Graham once said that if God does not judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. When you read what Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for, our sin load is some order of magnitude probably greater than theirs. Right? Second, the word of God's prophets always came to pass. When you read these biographical narratives, God's word always comes to pass. And third, the Lord remembered his promise to David and kept his dynasty intact in order to fulfill the promise that he made to him that a seed of David would always sit on the throne until Messiah. So the overarching theme of these books is God's faithfulness to his covenant. If you ever want a wake-up call about how God thought about his people, Israel, and how much he loved them, read Deuteronomy 28. Verses 1 to 14 are a detailed list of all the blessings that would occur to the nation if they obeyed. It's a pretty extensive list, 14 verses. However, verse 15 to 68 is an even more extensive list of all the curses that God would bring on them if they disobeyed. And God told them up front, look, if you obey, here's what I will do. If you disobey, here's what I will do. So no one can say, we didn't know how you would respond. Yes, you did. God told them over and over and over again. First and Second Kings records how God always keeps his promises, even when we don't. Here's the principle. This works today the same as it worked back then. God always blesses the obedient and disciplines the disobedient in his time and in his way. God always blesses the obedient and disciplines the disobedient in his time and in his way. You will never violate this truth. Just because judgment doesn't happen now doesn't mean it won't happen. It just means that God loves us so much he's patient with our foolishness. Because he loves us and he wants us to repent. There were five nations that played a significant role in Israel's history. Five nations. Uh, During Saul and David's reign, the primary enemy was the Philistines. Now on this map, you're going to see Jerusalem. If you take Jerusalem and just go left to the coast, the Philistines were there. They lived in modern-day Gaza Strip, right? Southwest of Jerusalem on the coast. They immigrated from Crete uh, probably 300, 400 years before the time of David. And they were the primary enemy of uh, Israel uh, during Saul and David's reign, the Philistines. During Solomon and Rehoboam's reign, Egypt to the south played a significant role in Israel's history. Not just under Moses, but also under Solomon and Rehoboam. The 9th century, from about 890 BC to about 800, there was about a 90-year period, Syria, also known as Aram, played an ongoing military threat, and they were just north of Israel. You'll see the capital city of Damascus. That whole area surrounding Damascus, one of the oldest cities in the planet, uh, was a major enemy. They were always raiding in northern Israel. You'll see this during the period of Elisha, uh, and during eight, 800 Elijah, Syria was the primary enemy of Israel at that point. There was a 50-year period between 800 and 750 B.C. was a time of tremendous peace for Israel. Assyria had neutralized Syria. Assyria, Assyria, further east, had neutralized Syria, Damascus, knocked them out and Assyria had still not moved south, so they had a little window of time there, about a 50-year period, where there was tremendous peace and prosperity. However, about 750-755, Assyria began to expand. And that, of course, is modern-day Iraq-Iran. And they invaded the northern kingdom in 722. They just came over the Fertile Crescent, you can see Assyria there. And Israel, the ten northern tribes, disappeared as a distinct nation in 722. The southern kingdom survived another hundred plus years, and in 605, General Nebuchadnezzar from the Babylonian Empire to be conquered the combined forces of Egypt and Assyria at the Battle of Carchemish, one of the most famous battles of ancient times. So from 612 to 539, 80-90 years, Babylon, modern-day Iraq, was the premier regional power. They invaded Judah three times, 605, 597, and 586. Three invasions. And the third time, they took the temple, burned it to the ground for the gold, destroyed the city, leveled it to the ground, the final invasion. So that just gives you a little history of how this all fits into time and space. Let's pick up the narrative in 1 Kings chapter 3. This begins during the last year of David's life. Uh, David is not well. He is uh, bedbound, and um, he's been fighting lots of wars, and he is a sick man. His eldest son is named Adonijah. Adonijah plots to overthrow David and kill him and take over the king. Even though David had made it clear some years before that Solomon was going to be his designated heir. Adonijah was an arrogant pampered 35-year-old prince charming says he was handsome of course his brother Absalom was handsome as well he's the surviving son because David's oldest son Amnon was killed by Absalom the next youngest son for raping his half sister Tamar right it gets messy Absalom is then killed by Joab so David's got two sons that were executed right Adonijah's the last surviving oldest son, and he is now going to overthrow King David. He invites some selected guests to a feast to kind of gather their political support. He's trying to build a coup that he can overthrow dad. David is 70 years old. He's in poor health. He's confined to his bedchamber. He's unaware of the plot until Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, inform him. David's been procrastinating, passing the baton. Have you noticed that people in power have trouble giving it up? Yes? We live in a very unique world where we have people like Pastor Roger and Pastor Phil that spend years passing the baton, so when they do pass it, it's securely passed. right? David waited till he was almost dead, and he almost has a coup on his hands, and then he passes it. And so that very day, he has Solomon anointed as king, seats him on the throne, the people of Jerusalem are thrilled that there's finally a decision who's going to be the king, and they cheer so loudly that the sound is heard all the way down the hill at Adonijah's feast. Well, when it becomes clear that Solomon's been crowned, he's now co-regent with David, all of Adonijah's supporters flee. We're out of here, because now that's a capital crime if you're trying to uh, pull a coup off. So Solomon gives Adonijah, his older brother a conditional reprieve. He says, if you behave well, I'll let you live. So Solomon then receives the final charge from David. David is now nearly dead, and he says, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Number one, obey God's law. Obey God's law, and you will succeed, right? You'll have a successful reign. He says, there's three people you need to deal with. I didn't deal with them. You need to deal with them. Joab, my cousin, is the general of the army, and he murdered two of my generals in peacetime. He also murdered my son Absalom against my orders. You need to take care of him. He didn't say kill him. He just said deal with him, right? Also, Solomon was told by David, you need to show kindness to Barzillai. Barzillai is a very rich guy. When David was fleeing from his life, from Jerusalem, Barzillai fed his whole household for weeks. I mean, very, very sacrificial. He says, you take care of this guy. He took care of me. And thirdly, when I was fleeing Solomon from Jerusalem, there's this character of the family of Saul named Shimei. And he threw rocks at me, stones at me, and cursed me. Now, cursing a king back in the day was a capital crime. That would get your head cut off. He said, Solomon, deal with him. So Solomon, it records, he's probably 20 years old at this point, probably 18 to 19 to 20. And he gives uh, Shimei a chance to prove himself. He doesn't. Kills him. Adonijah uh, tries to marry one of David's harem members named, um, Oh, what was her name? Yeah, yeah, anyway, her. She's a young teenager, so he's trying to take the throne over through the back door. Because if you married the king's, one of the king's harem, you, you were literally making a claim to the throne. So Adonijah gets executed, and uh, Solomon has Joab executed for insubordination and murder. So now the f- kingdom is firmly under Solomon's control. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. The next thing Solomon does. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in his statutes of his father David except, underline that word, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Here's the principle. Tolerating sin leads to more sin. When you love the Lord with all your heart, you will hate sin. Tolerating sin leads to more sin. The solution is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you will wind up hating sin. So the name Solomon comes from the Hebrew Shalom, which means peace, right? Solomon was a very different character than his father David. Uh, Solomon grew up in the luxury of the palace as the crown prince. Solomon had never known the hard life of a shepherd. Solomon never known the hard life of a soldier. Solomon's faith had never been tested by trials because he'd never been in a place where he was under trial. He'd never had any hardship. David was a man of war. Solomon was a man of peace. God gave him peace on every side. So Solomon, one of the first things he did, he decided to make peace with foreign nations by marriage. Many marriages in that era, many royal marriages in that era, were made to seal political alliances. Here's the thought. If you're going to invade your neighbor because you want something they have, chances are you might be less likely to invade if your daughter and your grandchildren are living in that foreign palace. Got it? Because you might not want them to be harmed. So marriage between royals was seen as kind of a political insurance policy. If I've got enough of your daughters and your grandchildren living in my palace under my care, you probably won't invade and try and take my head off because they could be harmed. It also is known as the little polite hostage taking, right? They never (laughs) said that, but I mean, that's really what it boils down to. So David had, anytime he was in trouble, he trusted God to help him when he was fighting to protect Israel from her enemies. Solomon was a different character. He trusted in human ingenuity and political deal-making. It's likely, we're not exactly sure, it's likely that a significant percentage of Solomon's wives were political arrangements, and he had 700 of them. And he's the wisest man who ever lived. (laughs) And 300 concubines besides that. He must have been making political treaties with every petty warlord anywhere who had a daughter of marriageable age. You know, the truth of it is, he had no business marrying anybody else. He's already married. He married to of the Ammonitis. That was the mother of his son Rehoboam, his oldest son who inherited the throne. It's a clear violation. God commanded, in Deuteronomy 17, about kings. This was Israel's kings. Number one, they had to be a native. Number two, quote, He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. It doesn't say might turn away. It says will turn away. Do we have that command in the New Testament? Marry only fellow Christians, period. God knows the human heart. He knows what happens to us when we're unequally yoked. I'm not saying the redemption of God's grace can't cover it if we make that mistake. It can. I've seen a lot of grace come out of that. But baby, don't tell me there's not a price. There's always a price for disobedience. Always. God had commanded the entire nation, by the way, not to make any covenant with the people of the land or intermarry with them. Exodus 7.2. When the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take your daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to what? Serve other gods. See, God had chosen and set apart Israel for himself. They were to be a holy nation. They were to be separated and different from every other nation on earth. Guess what? As Christians, You and I are to be different and separated from the people of this earth by our behavior. It's not that we don't associate. It's not that we're not in the world, but we don't have the same DNA. Yes? And we don't have the same destination. You're going up. Right? Okay. Now, these were political and foreign commercial treaties that Solomon was making with all the nations around and he was entangling Israel in the web of the world. God wanted Israel to trust him alone, but Solomon was putting his trust in the nations and foreign decision makers and political treaties. And he thought it was economic and political progress. Spiritually, it was retreat, defeat, and disaster. Anything that draws you away from God is a disaster. I don't care how profitable it is, anything that draws you away from the Lord your God is a disaster. I don't care if you become a billionaire out of it. You're going to die and leave it all. And me too. Amen? Okay, so Solomon marries Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, and he goes to worships on the high places. Now, the high places were these hilltop worship centers. The Canaanites used to sacrifice to their pagan gods up there and do their really, really, really grossly wicked, uh, sexual perverse sacrifices, etc., and God said, don't do that. Now, they here's the thinking. You sacrificed and you build your altars on the highest mountain you could find because that way you were closer to your God, and your God could hear your prayers quicker if you were at a little elevation than if you were down low, right? Because your God you know, he has, needs hearing aids, right? So you need to get a little closer, right? That was the thought process. God said to Israel, I'm going to choose the place where you're going to worship me. I've got a central location where you're going to worship me, and it's in Jerusalem, right? And that's the only acceptable place to offer sacrifices because that's where I'll meet with you. Now, the temple hadn't been built yet, so Israel simply tore down the Canaanite altars and sacrificed to God at the old Canaanite high places, which he had forbidden them to do. Now Solomon went along with this. He violated God's command in this regard. It says that Solomon walked in the statutes of his father David, except, that little word except will kill you stone dead, right? It indicates that his his obedience was incomplete. From the very beginning, he began to compromise in little things, right? First with polygamy, I don't think that's a very little thing, right? And then with a failure to follow God's command with worship. And these small leaks in the dike eventually turned into a tsunami that destroyed his life and divided the kingdom and darn near destroyed it 40 years later. And he went to Gibeon to do these sacrifices about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was the place where the tabernacle was temporarily and the bronze altar. And he made a great sacrifice there, a thousand burnt offerings. This probably took a week, right? Maybe a little bit more. And this word burnt offering means to ascend. It means to go up and smoke. God indicated that a burnt offering was a sweet aroma in his sight. So a burnt offering is you have this animal, an ox and a sheep or whatever, and you burn the entire animal on the altar except for the hide. You skinned it out first and burned it up on the altar. And it indicated that you were giving your entire self to the Lord. You burned the whole animal up as an indication that you were giving your entire self, all of you, without exception, to the Lord. So it was an indication of dedication and personal complete commitment to the Lord. And that's why God approved of that, because he wanted his people to give him their heart. And this was a picture of that. And God indicated his pleasure at Solomon's generous sacrifice by giving him a pretty generous offer as well. Verse 5, God appeared to Solomon in a dream at night and said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Underline that. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and upright of heart to you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet... I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Here's the principle. Ask God to give you what you need in order to do what he's told you to do. Ask God to give you what you need in order to do what he's told you to do. Now, God often spoke to people in the Old Testament through dreams. That was not unique. What was unique is this is a two-way conversation in a dream, right? Think about this. The God of the universe comes to you in a dream and says, I'm commanding you, ask me what you want me to do for you. You know, God's bank account is kind of like thoroughly, completely unlimited. And he signed a blank check and he said, fill it in. What do you want me to do for you? Now, by the way, God didn't promise, I'll do whatever you ask. He said, ask me what you want me to do for you. That was a diagnostic question. He wanted Solomon to reveal his heart and his values and his priorities. It wasn't that God didn't really know him. He did, but Solomon didn't. Would Solomon request something for his own glory or God's glory? See, the question's not God's abilities. The question is our appetites. I would ask you just a simple diagnostic question. When you pray, assuming you do, and if you don't, God will give you a reason to pray soon by this afternoon, right? When you pray, What do you most often ask God to do for you? When you pray, what do you most often ask God to do for you? That reveals your values, your priorities, your desires, and what's important to you. When we pray, pay attention to what falls out of your mouth. Our prayers sometimes are very habitual. It's not like we're aware that the Holy Spirit is right here, right here, lives inside us, paying attention to us. Solomon said wisely, number one, you've been kind to my father David. I look back over your history with me. You have been kind to my family. Has he been kind to your family? You wouldn't be here if he wasn't kind to your parents that had taken you out by now, right? We all deserve that. So we begin by thanking God for his history of faithfulness with us. He acknowledges, Lord, I'm your servant and I'm dependent on you. The only reason I'm on the throne is because you put me here. So when you pray, acknowledge that you are where you are because of God's goodness right? Why are you here? Why are you not dead? It's because God has work for you to do, and in his mercy, he still keeps us breathing and gives us things to do. We need to acknowledge that, right? His elevation came to the throne only because God chose to make him king. He said, I'm a little child. He's 20. Guess what? We're more than 20, and yet compared to God, we are little children. Honestly terms of what we know about the universe at large. He's lived a sheltered life in the palace. He knows next to nothing about how to lead a nation. His dad made all the decisions and he's lived with mom and probably in their own quarters and he's had a very sheltered life. He acknowledges that the kingdom of Israel did not belong to him. That's pretty good. Do you acknowledge that what you manage doesn't belong to you? God, I own nothing. You own everything. I'm just a steward. I'm a manager of what you've given me to manage, right? Israel belonged to God. God was the ruler of the nation. God had appointed Solomon to be his vice regent and ruler, the human ruler over the land. Israel probably numbered 4 million people, probably at that point. He said, God, I'm not able to go out and come in. That phrase occurs often. Moses talked about that. The word go out and come in probably refers to a shepherd who leads the flock out of the sheepfold into the pasture for food and drink, and in the evening leads them back into the sheepfold for safety. So that implies leadership capacity to lead safely the flock out, guard them when they're out there eating and feeding, drinking, etc., and lead them back into the sheepfold. So he's talking about, I don't have the leadership capacity based on experience to do this. I'm depending on you. And kings in Israel were often referred to as shepherds of the nation. Solomon said, I'm completely inadequate for the job. Have you ever told God you're completely inadequate for the job? Every time I think about Mary and I go, Lord, you could have picked a better husband, but you picked me. I'm inadequate. Think about it. Yeah, she's going, that's right, that's right. (laughs) You have no idea how inadequate he is. That's right, yeah. We all are, we all are. We are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit to lead us and teach us and guide us and show us how to do the things that he wants to do through us and in us in the time he's given us on planet Earth. So he said, God, I need you to give me what I need in order to do what you've told me to do. Because I don't have it in myself. And what he needed was discernment and understanding. He says, Lord, give me an understanding heart. It literally means a discerning heart. It literally means a hearing heart. A hearing heart. I want to hear the voice of God so I can lead Israel as God directs me to lead Israel. In the Hebrew, by the way, Hearing and obeying were the same word. When you heard the word of God, it was expected that you would, of course, obey what you heard because God is the one who's speaking. In Jewish thought, the heart was not a pumper. The heart was the core of who you are. It was your emotions, your intellect, your will, your personality, your values, it was everything. So he said, give me a hearing, an understanding, an obedient heart, so that I can discern between good and evil. Now in that era, the king was the supreme ruler, the final judge, and the arbiter of everything in the realm. And the primary job of the king was to dispense justice. And justice requires discernment. Yes, if you're going to say, this is right and this is wrong, you better know the difference between right and wrong just saying. If you don't know the difference between right and wrong, justice will not be served, which means we need to be praying in this land of ours. Solomon was not asking for personal wisdom. He was asking for practical wisdom that enabled him to judge effectively. Verse 10, how did God respond? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself, long life, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk before me, keeping your statutes and my commandments, as your father David did, then I will prolong your days. Here's the principle. When you surrender your desires to the Lord, he always gives you more than you imagined. Some of you are nodding because you have experienced that. When you surrender your desires to the Lord, he always gives you more than you imagined. When you want God himself more than you want the gifts that God gives, now God can trust you with more because you won't be corrupted by the gifts. You will value the giver more than the gifts. Some of you know this, you have grandchildren. Doesn't it do your heart good when your grandchildren just want to hang out with you? Not just because of the goodies you give them, but because they value you as a person. God is a person. He values it when we value Him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's not a question of His capacity to give gifts. It's why would you be satisfied with a gift when you can know the giver? That's the great treasure. Psalm 34 says what? Delight yourself in the Lord. The word delight means indulge, as in chocolate. (laughs) Indulge yourself in the Lord, right? And what? He will give you the desires of your heart. Here's, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him who will do it. Most of us don't even know our own desires. And what we do desire without the Holy Spirit is usually harmful. So when you commit your way to the Lord, He not only gives us the desires, He helps us desire the right things. So our desires don't lead us astray. God delights in giving wisdom to those who ask Him in faith. None of us are adequate in ourselves, but every single person is more than adequate because you have the Holy Spirit who lives in you. So God answered his prayer, made him the wisest person who ever lived. He also gave him what he didn't ask for, riches and honor. He was the richest and most sought after king of his era. People came far and wide to hear his wisdom, see his wealth. We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. God gave him a conditional promise. He said, if you follow me like your father David did, David was a standard, then I'll prolong your days. Unfortunately, Solomon died before 60 due to disobedience, dramatic disobedience. He was the wisest fool who ever lived. (laughs) Do not be a wise fool. Do not be a wise fool. Verse 15, Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered burnt offerings, and made peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. The dream was so real... Solomon didn't realize it was, a, it was a dream until he woke up. And then he goes, I thought this was real. It was real, but it happened in the context of a dream. The best part of God's blessings, by far, is God himself. The best part of God's blessing is a relationship. It's a closer relationship with him. So after Solomon had this experience and a dream at Gilead, Gibeah, he comes back seven miles. He comes to Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant is, He stands before the ark, and he has the priests offer burnt offerings, indicating his complete dedication to the Lord. He wanted a closer relationship with the God of Israel. He began well. He began well. However, Solomon wrote late in life, probably his late 50s, he died before 60, in Ecclesiastes 7, 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Most of us in this room are playing the back nine, for those of you that golf. Some of you are are in the teens right now, Just saying you're not in the nine. You may be at the 15th hole, 16th hole, whatever it happens to be. For those of us in that position, those of us not in that position, I would ask you to seriously contemplate what ending well looks like for you. What does it look like with the time that God has given you left, which is unknown, but it's shorter today than it was yesterday? What does it mean to end well? And how can you discipline what you need to discipline under the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit in order to finish well, so you don't take an exit off the freeway to heaven? Not that you won't go to heaven, but you'll lose rewards, as we talked about last week. Many of us began well, took exits. The Lord, in his infinite mercy, got us back on track, right? He tends to do that every day. He nudges us. Sometimes he grabs us and puts us back on the track. Sometimes he lets us wander in the wilderness and experience the consequences of our folly before we wake up and decide to come back under his grace. But I want you to think about ending well and what that means for you and what God wants you to do with the time you have left. Don't waste your days on trivia. I talk to people every day, and I say, how's it going now that you're retired? Well, you know, we saw a good show, went grocery shopping the other day. I mean, you know. What else? Well, we just kind of, you know, pull a few weeds, trim a few things, and see the grandkids every now and then. By the way, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But that's not what you trade your days for. If it doesn't have eternal payoff, what's the point? That's why God gave you the days. Now, I can't tell you what that's going to look like, but I know the Holy Spirit has a very specific plan for every single one of you. He doesn't give you a day without purpose. He has a purpose for today. He has a purpose for this afternoon. Do you know what it is? No. Well, then you might ask him. I promise you he'll ask you. He'll he'll answer you. See, Brad's problem is not that I don't know. It's sometimes I want to do what I want to do, so then it's just easier not to ask him, because then he'll tell me. And then it's just flat-out disobedience. But if I don't ask him, that's also flat-out disobedience, right? I'm just confessing before you pray about this. Let me review the principles. Everything we always talk about in class, bring before the Lord. Don't take Brad Hannock's word for anything. You take these principles, bring them before the Lord, and say, Lord, what is it you want me to do? Because he's your king. Principle one, God records history so that we can learn from the examples of others. Number two, God's people must faithfully represent him on earth. That means to your neighbors too so that the world may know who he is and how to have a relationship with him. Number three, God always blesses the obedient and disciplines the disobedient in his time and his way. Number four, tolerating sin leads to more sin. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, you will hate sin. Number five, Ask God to give you what you need in order to do what he has told you to do. Not what I've told you to do, what he's told you to do. And lastly, when you surrender your desires to the Lord, he always gives you more than you imagined. We have a God that delights in giving you good things. When you see your grandchildren come over, do you love to, to lavish them with good things? Of course you do. Your Heavenly Father delights in showing you His favor because He loves you so much. Loves us so much. Anyway, thank you for listening. We've covered a lot of material. Next week, we'll pick up more of Solomon, Lord
1: willing. Now that you know, do